we have been and will continue to be in uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this uh, teaching is the last of six little things that uh, Bible scholars call the antitheses. Uh, Jesus filling out this statement that he has come to fulfill the whole of the law. This is what we hear in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may take a seat. So when my eldest boy came into the world, who he's like now three and a half-ish, uh, when Griffin came into the world, there was a question that came to me that I didn't expect to come to me, uh, but it came quite frequently. And the question was this, who does he look like? And perhaps you have asked this question or this question has been asked of you. And at first, I, I, um, I think I was offended because obviously me, but w w um, what do you think the response was? Yeah, the response was Jessica. My wife's name is Jessica. And so overwhelmingly, the people were like, that looks like Jessica. And um, I now realize that that is a natural and normal question that people ask. And it is even appropriate that that question would be asked, like, who does he look like? And, and because those observations are normal, we, we can look on someone's face and we go, oh, yeah, that, that's the family knows. Or she has her mother's eyes, etc., etc. But what I've learned is that though Griffin looks more like uh, the Hall side of the family, um, is I know he is my boy. And I know he's my boy from more than his looks. Uh, see, if you ever get to carry on a, a conversation with this uh, precocious little three-year-old, uh, what you'll soon find out is, um, is that his eyebrows dance. If you're wondering what I mean, uh, almost every statement and question and curiosity makes his forehead come alive. It's like his eyebrows are doing the worm. It's, uh, it's like, it's pure joy. Um, I actually didn't think much of this. I don't actually think I noticed it until uh, Christy Heilman said, Griffin does what you do. And I, I was like, oh, I feel flattered. What does he do? <laughs> and then she made her eyebrows dance. And if you ever, uh, by the way, that's a great look, Christy. Just, um, and what I, what I realized in that moment is, oh, oh, okay. Like I had this vague awareness that I have nonverbals and that somehow they communicate things to the people I'm around. But what I didn't know is that my nonverbals actually have come to bear on this tiny human. And then they are like soaked into his person and they come out on his face, dancing eyebrows. You see, there, there are family traits that are, Natural. Things that are unchosen, it's a nose, it's your eyes, it's the color of your skin. Things that you had no choice and they just happened to you. And then there are things that like water on thirsty ground, they over time sink down into the substrata of your life and then they come out 
in ways that you don't expect. They just are like diffused into your body. It's dancing eyebrows. There's, there are things that are unchosen, family traits that you didn't choose, and there's some that come by virtue of where you are and who you're with. And what's curious, what I've learned about Griffin, it's not, um, it's not who I wish I was that comes out through him. It's who I actually am. The good, the bad, and the ugly all comes out. And I'm grateful that Christy showed me the dancing eyebrows because now you just can't miss it. Um, this is the, the same thing that happens in the family of God. In, in Jesus' family, we, we hear these words come out. I'm going to start us in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And I start us in verse 44, rather in verse 43, because I think that this line itself actually gives shape to what Jesus is saying in the whole of this passage. It's so telling. And, and hear this. The trait that tells our family story in Christ is the love of our enemies. The trait that tells our family story is enemy love. See, the family of God is not defined by ethnicity. It is not defined by uh, orientation. It is not defined by gender. It is not defined by the color of your skin. Rather, the family of God, the, the, the trait that tells the world that we belong to the community of eternal love, the dancing eyebrows, if you will, it's, it's enemy love. And our capacity to cultivate compassion and empathy and even to love our enemies, it tells the story, it tells the world what family we belong to. And I, I start us here to remind us that with Jesus, we don't always get our own way. Um, it's not as though we come to Jesus and then Jesus just puts a rubber stamp of approval on our choices for life. No, when we come to Jesus, we get a way which is called the ethic of the kingdom of God. This is the way of love. So we come to Jesus and we get a way and we come to Jesus and we get an identity, beloved daughter and son. So we come to Jesus. We don't get our own way, but we get a way, the way of the kingdom, and we get an identity in that kingdom. And I start us there to remind us of that because there is a family trait in the kingdom of God that tells what family we belong to and it is enemy love. And so if that's where we start, let's see where uh, Jesus is going to start. He's going to start back in verse 43. But before we, we get to verse 43, um, each week when I come into a teaching text, I, I get to kind of like process through it and think, okay, like where, where does this cross over in my life? And as I was thinking through this, this odd thing came to the surface of my imagination uh, and it was this simple word, no. When I hear Jesus say um, something like, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, or in our passage, love your enemy, the word that comes to the surface of my imagination is no. This is one thing to think theologically or pastorally about this passage, which is a task that I take up every week when I come to the scriptures, and, or whoever is teaching, we ask them to do the same, to think theologically and, and pastorally, but it is an altogether different experience to come to what Jesus is saying and then to th the thing that rises up from your gut to be no. Like when this passage is saying, Kyle, love your enemy, and the thing that happens is no, it's a little bit odd because um, my job is actually to teach the Bible <laughs> part of it. 
You see, I, I could talk about enemies generally, and what that would do is it would keep the words of Jesus kind of out in this space in front of me, like in the periphery of my life and even out of the bounds of my life, and that would be fine. We would learn some stuff about enemies and what it might mean to move forward for them, some technique, if you will, but the moment that I start hearing Jesus say, Kyle, love your enemy, the moment the word turns toward me, which, um, by the way, anytime that you're in the scriptures, this is the inclination of the living word, to turn towards you. This is like when, when God, when John is going to riff on what, what happens when the divine puts on flesh, it's the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what the word of God does. It moves toward us. And so sitting in this and seeing that the invitation is for me to, to love my enemy, at that moment, if I'm honest with, with you, if I'm honest with myself, the disdain felt more satisfying than the forgiveness, like, I wanted to hold on to the disdain rather than the forgiveness. And this is, this is the thing. Like, I, I actually believe that I should love my enemy. I, I just read this passage over us. Like, I, I believe that this is Jesus' heart for me, that I should love my enemy. I even believe that God's personal presence, in, like, fills my body to move me to become a person who can love my enemy. But what I'm realizing is... Um, I think I'm okay if, if God loves my enemy, but I do not want God to love my enemy through me. And if that resonates with you at any level, my invitation to you and to me this morning is just to try and humble ourselves under God's word as it turns toward us. Because in the family of God, the trait that tells his story is enemy love. And that type of love will disrupt our desire to hold our disdain over our enemies. So we start in verse 44 to remind ourselves that we get a way, we get an identity, and that way is a way of love, and that identity is beloved daughter or son. So let's see where Jesus starts in verse 43. He says this, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What's funny is that last little part, hate your enemy, search all you want through the Old Testament and you will not find those words. In fact, you will not find love your enemy and, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy together in all of the Old Testament. What you will find are some people who are dearly loved by God hating their neighbors. You'll see the people of Israel who are um, holding disdain over their, their, their enemies who are actually their neighbors. You'll see plenty of examples of that, but no time in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, or the prophets, or the Psalms, or the other writings, nowhere in the composition of the Old Testament will you find God calling God's people to hate their enemies and it's for this reason that a number of scholars when they come to this passage in Matthew chapter 5 they think that Jesus is combating a specific teaching of the religious like he said you have heard it said in other words like this thing hate your enemies is in the air and so what they think Jesus is doing is is he is pushing back against a certain type of xenophobia that word xenophobia is, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's just the fear of a stranger. So Jesus, in, in this passage, is pushing up against the fear of a stranger because the, the question that's underneath this is, who's my neighbor? And the response to who your neighbor would be for a Jewish person was a Jewish person of my ilk. In other words, a Jewish person who is like me. 
And if you are beyond that, if you're not like me and you're not a Jew, then you're not my neighbor, and therefore the opposite of me moving towards you in love would be disdain, to hold you apart as my enemy. But the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus situates himself in the world is and really, so the invitation to you and to me of how we are to situate ourselves in the world, it's entirely other. And the way that Jesus orients his community toward his enemy is different. L- listen, this is uh, like a, a way, an example of how this plays itself out in Jesus' time and space. This is a story from Luke chapter 10. You probably know it. Let's pick up in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, maybe your translation says a scribe, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And maybe, uh, just let me reframe eternal life for us uh, ever so quickly. Um, What must I do to inherit eternal life is less about like a disembodied, like you being a plump cherub in the heavens with a harp. It's less disembodied, and it's more about what does it look like for God's presence, God's blessing, God's reality to invade my life now and continue on into the age to come. Eternal life is something that is in, like, now in session and is something that continues. So the scribe is asking, what's it look like to truly live? Maybe a religious person today or a spiritual person might ask, what must I do to stand in the flow of divine favor? Jesus responds in verse 26, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? By the way, this is like textbook Jesus right here. Question comes, Jesus kind of his little judo move is to respond with a question, and so then the scribe goes in verse 27, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is, um, this is literally the textbook answer from Deuteronomy and Leviticus 19. Like, th- this is the response. So what's Jesus say? Verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And you would think that the conversation was over, but what we see here in verse 29 is that the scribe has something else in mind. Uh, He wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus that question that's beneath our text, who is my neighbor? Because who the neighbor is will qualify the love, and it'll give texture to the hate. So then Jesus moves into this little parable. This is in verse 30. And if you don't know this story, or even if you do, stay with me here. Um, In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, now just pause right there at the beginning of verse 33, a Samaritan is the ethnic other. This would be like a, um, I don't know, somebody who maybe marched in a BLM, like peaceful protest, and a proud boy, if those are helpful categories. So a a white supremacist and somebody who's advocating for uh, racial equity and justice. Those two people, that's like the intensity of comparison between uh, a Samaritan and a Jew. That's the level of animosity, uh, perhaps. So what we see is now a Samaritan enters the story. And as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he doesn't go to the other side. He took 
pity. That word is compassion. This, is, this word is related to a womb. This is like a unique and distinct feature of, of affection. He took compassion on him, and he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Amen. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out a large sum of money and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for an extra exp- any extra expense you may have. So after this little story, Jesus then returns to this core question, who is my neighbor? And listen to how this goes down. Are, are you still with me? Okay, verse 36. Which of these three men, he asks the scribe, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Any guess? Who was it? Thank you, Linnea. So Linnea just said the Samaritan. Notice what the scribe says in verse 37. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What's so curious, uh, commentators will note, is that the animosity is so thick between Jews and Samaritans that this scribe, the expert in the law, won't even utter the ethnicity of this person. They have so far removed this person from their humanity that they are not just an ethnic other. They, They don't even have a name. It's just that person over there the one who had mercy on him. Curiously, um, the Samaritan is one of three characters in the gospel according to Luke that has compassion. Do you want to know who the other two are? Jesus and uh, God the Father. The Samaritan, the ethnic other, the quote-unquote enemy, is put on par with Jesus, God's messenger. Listen to what Jesus tells the scribe. This is the end of the parable. This is like the punchline. Go and do likewise. What's the point? Other than the fact that this is a beautiful story, uh, hear this. Jesus outright refuses a narrow view of neighboring. He just refuses it. Because in the kingdom of God, love is incongruent. That is, it does not map on to hate. Because you cannot love your neighbor, and hate your enemy if your enemy is your neighbor. Hear this one more time. You cannot love your neighbor and hate your enemy if your enemy is your neighbor. Like those things don't actually come together in the kingdom of God because Jesus refuses a narrow view of neighboring because God's love is an all-expansive love. And the love that Jesus is on about, the love in the kingdom of God, it is about bending your will toward the good of another, even your enemy. And this is way easier to preach about on a Sunday morning than it is to embody. So let's uh, hear about this a different way. Jesus goes on back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Flip or tap your way on over there, if you will. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so what does it look like for the indiscriminate love of God to come out? Well, we see this here. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God does not care if you are righteous or wicked. That might sound a bit blasphemous at a church on on Sunday morning, but just um, whether you're righteous or wicked, the rain will get you wet and the sun will warm your skin. Why? Because God's love is indiscriminate. There's some church traditions that call this common grace. 
This is the like amplification of God's good. The intention of God's like toward creation is good. And so what we see is that whether you are righteous or wicked, you will be wet if it is raining and warm if the sun is shining. God's love is indiscriminate because this is fundamental to who God is. Uh, John, who is later called the Apostle of Love, which is like an excellent name. If that Twitter handle is not taken, maybe go for it. Um, but the Apostle of Love, John, will, will go on to say that the, the short little sentence, God is love. In other words, God cannot not be loving because it is foundational to God's character. God is love. There is no off button to God's love. And that is, that, that's not like, well, you get to the New Testament, all of a sudden the love turns on. No, it's like consistently. It is the assurance of salvation we read today that God's love is everlasting. There is no off button to that kind of love. And so for me, coming to this passage, Jesus' words, they like hit in a different way. They kind of pierce this instinct for self-preservation and uh, this fallen notion, this impulse to seek vengeance. Jesus' words are ultimately a myth on redemptive violence. Um, Redemptive violence is the idea that if enough like good guys get together and they uh, bring all of their willpower and arms against the bad guys, then finally peace will come. Have you ever seen a Marvel movie? Okay. No, maybe you haven't. Did you ever play like cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians? I know that that's not like a PC thing. Uh, in 2022. Have you ever had a moment where there's like a monster and you're the heroine or the hero? Like if whatever time in human history, those actions, Marvel movies are a perfect example because there's a group of good guys who get together to like um, smite the bad guys. This is ancient mythology. Like it's specifically ancient Nordic mythology if you want to nerd out. And it's perpetuating the myth of redemptive violence that if enough good people get together, they can take care of the bad guys. But how do they do it? They do it through violence. And maybe in the short term, there is like, it's the battle scene where like the dust settles. But what do you see behind? You see wreckage. And what do you see before? It's the, like the next, it's like the eighth movie in the series where, and another thing gets destroyed because it will continue. And Jesus's words pierce right through that instead of violence against your enemy, there is to be love. This is where Jesus' teachings um, part way with the stuff that we've been conditioned by and where Jesus' teachings feel so offensive to me because he's calling me, Kyle, to love my enemy, but I don't really want him to love my enemy through me, and I don't even know how to do that. And so Jesus goes on, and he, he invites me to do it, and, and we hear it here. Pray for those who persecute you. It's love expressed through prayer. I like the way that Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament scholar, defines love. He says this, love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. It is a rugged commitment, that it is an enduring commitment to move toward God's end for that person, which at some level assumes that you have a vision for what God's definition of flourishing is. It is like whole person, emotional, physical, spiritual healing, and that you, even your enemy, you would desire that for them and pray to that end. This is not Jesus giving us a cute formula for life in the kingdom. And still, when I 
hear Jesus say pray for my enemy, the thing that comes to my mind is like, oh, I'll pray like the imprecatory psalms. These are psalms about like the destruction of your enemies and their damnation. And I'm like, I can get down with that type of prayer, Jesus. But instead, I think Jesus is praying every kind of good over your enemy. He's praying blessing to pray hope. The types of things that you want others to pray for you, now release that. And let me just um, pause right here. Um, when I say enemy, does, does like a person populate in any of your imaginations? You don't have to like say their name or anything. Okay, let me ask a different question. Who do you find it difficult to pray for? Or let me say this a different way. Who do you not want to pray for? Are there some people or maybe a group of people? Whether that's a helpful question for you, I can't say. That question turned, like, it turned the lights on to like, oh, my enemy is far more than this single person that populated in my mind. I like hold whole people captive to my disdain. See, it's, it's in these moments that Jesus is here to remind us that he actually wants his love to flow through us and in turn that we encounter his love as conduits of love. And yet, even that, all that past pain and hurt and present disdain, it cries out and says no. Like, I actually, I, I get it. Like, I believe this thing, but I don't want this. So what I think that we need and the call that I would give to us this morning is for us to, like, trust the stuff that we believe. To actually start to trust these things that we believe. Like, if I believe that God is love and his love is revealed fully in Jesus and that type of love is an all-encompassing, indiscriminate type of love, then what does it look like for me to, I don't know, trust that that is true? To, to trust the things I believe, well, Jesus gives us a pathway and it's called prayer. Prayer can take multiple facets. It can be done in silence. It can be done with your voice. It can be done with a single word. It can be done with uh, the, the sinner prayer. This is not like the sinner prayer from fifth grade. This is uh, like Jesus have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the prayer. And in some sense, that prayer starts to form this dynamic relationship between you and the living God where you might actually be able to release the illusion of control, which is what your disdain very well may be. And I think prayer is where we get to practice the love of God. Because in the family of God, I actually have no right, I have no authority to hold disdain over my brother or sister, even my enemy. I think Jesus makes this point in verse 46. He says this, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? These are people who have turned against their brothers and sisters, their fellow Jews. Are not, like they're a despised group of people. Don't they love those who love them? Verse 47, If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? See, what Jesus is describing in verses 46 and 47 is prejudicial love. It's ultimately love that is contingent upon you. It's love that's really turned back. Like, I, I love them because I get something from them. And if there's, pe there's people in our life, now, is that bad? I don't think so. 
I actually think like it's a beautiful thing to have resonance with people, to relate to people. Maybe you like to go out and like chase little white balls around green pastures. Like that's your jam. You love golfing. And it's great for you to have people in your life with whom you can go and do that very thing. That's beautiful. What's different, to continue this silly illustration, is the person who's in their car honking at you in the, um, when you're on the tee box and you're in your backswing, like that's, the, like that's the type of person that Jesus is inviting you to like draw near to, to love that type of person. And I think what, man, what I continue to encounter in this passage and what I feel like the Spirit is teaching me through the wisdom of others in Jesus' words is that my disdain won't actually heal my hurt. And I, I don't know how that settles with you, but like my disdain doesn't have the power to deal with my past or present pain. And if I look at this honestly, I'm actually held captive by my disdain more than my enemy is. And I think that's what Jesus wants to release me from. And I think that's what Jesus wants to release you from, is that you would be the type of person who is held by God's love, and therefore you are free to do the same, to release other people into the care of God's love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a, had a way of saying this that I, I think just draws it together beautifully. He, he said it this way, hatred paralyzes life. And just think about that. We don't know if it's like from the knee down or like when your arm falls asleep because you're sleeping on it and it's like, what in the world? Where did my arm go? But hatred paralyzes life, but love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. He goes on to say, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I imagine that you don't think of yourself as a, a person f filled with hatred. I don't imagine that there's a lot of enemies that populate your imagination, but when you start to think, who will I not pray for, or who do I find it difficult to pray for, this is where we get to then practice the type of love, love that bends its will toward the good of that person. Because in the family of God, the trait that tells our story is enemy love. And I, by the way, I hope that this all feels like review. Even if you're like new to the way of Jesus, you're like, yeah, Jesus' people should probably be the people who love their enemies rather than the people who are like shouting down their enemies. See, I, I think this is perhaps one of the most potent teachings of Jesus because in the cultural moment we find ourselves in, um, what if there were a type of people who sincerely loved their enemy? Just let your imagination run wild with the type of like beauty that could come from that type of community. And so to, to finish this off, Jesus leaves us with these encouraging words at the end of chapter 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Go in peace. No, um, perhaps you have... Um, you relate to perfection by way of like an inner critic that is constantly telling you what you are not and what you have not done and everything has a moral implication. Um, it's right or wrong, it's black or white. Um, and you hear Jesus's words here and you're like, well, I was, I was fine loving my enemy until verse 48. At verse 48, I'm like, well, clearly Jesus is just like out to lunch on what reality is. Let me just remind us, Jesus was hung on a Roman execution rack by his enemies. 
Jesus was mocked, he was spit on, he was humiliated in the, most, in the worst possible ways. And then, what did, do you remember what Jesus did when he's hanging on the cross? Yeah, Braden? Yeah, like he, he like receives the, the prayers of people, like receive me, and then he prays for those who are killing him. He prays blessing over them. Because the, the trait that tells our family's story is enemy love. I, I, see, this idea of perfection um, is, is not like burdened by our understanding of moral perfection. It's this idea of loving completely, loving indiscriminately. I like how Eugene Peterson draws this together. He, he says it this way. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. You're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. See, just to close, um, this type of love, love that bends its will toward the good of the other, even at cost to yourself, this is not pragmatic. I actually don't know if Jesus cares much about pragmatism. Maybe that's just my personality, like hopeful that Jesus doesn't care about the pragmatic things. But this love will not be for your benefit often. It will situate you in the flow of love, but you may not feel all that great about this type of love. It may feel like you're being crucified on a cross or the daggers of others' words are going into you, but they need not go any further. This love is not strategic because Jesus is not trying to like build a movement. You know how you build a movement? You rise from the dead, you go to Rome and you conquer the king. You go and you like take out all their armies. When Jesus is in the garden and Peter like whips out his sword and he cuts a dude's ear off, he's like, chill. Do you not think that I could just call down legions? Like Jesus isn't trying to build some sort of strategic movement to conquer the world. So if love is not pragmatic and love is not strategic, what is this love? I'll tell you, uh, it's unnatural. It is unnatural for you to bend your will for the good of the other. It's unnatural for us to actually want God's blessing to flow into and over the people who we disdain. So how are we doing this morning about loving our enemies? Is this what you hope for when you come to church in the name of Jesus? I just come here to, yeah. I don't like this teaching maybe any more than your faces reflect that you like this teaching. And maybe it's something with a delivery. I don't know. But there is, there is a family portrait that Jesus through the Spirit is hopeful to paint in it. It's a type of people who love their enemies, who can receive the disdain of others. And we don't actually have to give it in kind. We can be the type of people over time who the Spirit is building in this like buffer of love but we actually cannot give what we don't have. So what, what I want us uh, to invite us into is this response. And, and each and every week we turn to the bread and the cup as kind of this climactic thing, but what I want us to do is I want us to sing. I want us to like respond to, to who Jesus is. So guys, you can, you can come up here um, because the trait that tells our family story is enemy love and yet this, does, this feels further from my story than most of Jesus' teachings. And so what we're going to do is simply respond to Jesus in song. I, I invite you to stand with me. Um, I don't know who, if anyone, like, came to your mind. 
I'm not asking you to pray for that person. <laughs> I think that person matters to Jesus. My, my concern is about you, not those people yet. But if we are not the type of people who have a posture of receiving God's love, let me just tell you this, like draw your attention right here for a moment. If we cannot receive God's love, it will, no, it will go no further. And God wants to desperately love Des Moines through us. So what I've learned about this little church is that we are an odd group of people in a really beautiful way. What I mean is that we cross paths with, I, I saw Logan the uh, last Sunday out in the wild. It happens. You can sometimes see Logan Christian out in the wild. It's a beautiful thing. And all of a sudden, these two guys, I think um, they, I, they look like they were in the music industry, like tattoos and gauges. I don't know. But they were these peculiar, I, like I have a fondness for that scene, I guess. And Logan is talking to them more than I've seen Logan talk to other humans. And this is, this is my point, not to draw Logan into the center of this conversation, is that I truly believe that in that moment, through Logan's like non-anxious presence, God is loving them through him, through his stage of life and his temperament and his disposition, and through your stage of life and temperament and personality, God wants to actually release love through you, but first, God wants to actually love you. We've been starting to say this thing a little bit around here, like you can belong before you believe, which is a silly statement, but I think it's super profound. It's that Jesus' table is wide open. He actually receives you and then invites you into this way of love to live out of your identity. He doesn't say, first, first do these things. Then once you've got this down pat, then you get my love, and then you get to participate in what I'm doing. No, he says it the other way around. Come to me, you who are weary. That is the call of Jesus. That's the call of love. And so what I want us to do, if you want, you're welcome to, is to actually sing from a place of welcome. And at the end of this, we're gonna, I'm going to come back up and we're going to take the bread and the cup and I'll give us a benediction. But, but could I just pray for us for a moment? Would that be okay? Josh, is that okay with you? Okay, so I'm going to pray over us that we would have like hearts tender enough to receive the love of God. Then we would sing out of that place of love and then respond in the bread and the cup. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I, I, I so desperately want to like manipulate emotionally so that we can have some sort of energetic experience that maps onto my personality. So I, one, like rebuke that in your name. And two, Jesus, I want you and I want you for these people. And I think that they actually want you, Jesus. And yet we have been in so many spaces where it has just been hype, but we've not experienced your presence. We don't want hype. We want the real thing. We want to see you, to experience your goodness, to experience your healing. So in your name, Jesus, would you, would you meet us with that grace? Would you draw us into your presence, into your love? And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do, that is to spread the love of the Father abroad in the heart of this church. So let us, Jesus, see you more clearly. And as we hear the songs of, the, of our brothers and sisters around us, of people who are altogether strangers, would we know that they too are family and that we are in this together to, to host your presence? So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Meet us in this space. Draw us into your presence. Amen.